I don't know if you feel this way, but I think part of the human experience as a believer is we feel ourselves being prone to wonder and we find ourselves being faithless, being unfaithful to the Lord in all sorts of ways, growing dry in our spiritual lives. I think the wonderful thing we're reminded of every time we come to church, every time we come to gather together, every time we come to the Bible, come together with other believers, is that although we're prone to be faithless and to be unfaithful, God is always faithful. And even in our wondering, he is gracious, and kind, and merciful, and loving towards us. And so my hope is, as, we, as we've now completely finished our series, My Family for His Glory, where we looked at Ephesians 5, to 6, 4, my hope is that after kind of coming on the back end of that, there might be among all of us, those of us who are, who are still raising children, those of us who have yet to, who've already done that, maybe looking back and, and just kind of feeling a little bit defeated, like, man, I haven't been doing it like I need to do it, or I didn't do it the way I needed to do it. I wasn't the kind of husband or wife, maybe you're a widow, a widower. I wasn't the kind of husband or wife I needed to be. I wasn't the kind of parent I needed to be, or I haven't been up to this point. And my hope is that, as, especially as we bounce off of that and go through Titus, that there will be that constant reminder of the glorious gospel of grace. That that reminder will buttress us and support us and strengthen us as we think about even our own failures and our own inability oftentimes uh, to, to walk in God's ways, to, to, to be faithful to him and to be obedient to his word, that we are always falling back as it were, into the arms of Jesus. Always reminded of his grace. Always reminded of the fact that he will never fail us. Even though we'll fail our spouse, we will fail our kids. God will never fail us, his children. And so I hope that that series has been fruitful in your life. I hope that our time in God's word in that passage, if nothing else, my prayer is this, that we'll just sort of savor the fact that God's word is so rich you know, as we leave Ephesians, we left John and we went into Ephesians and as we leave Ephesians and come into Titus, my hope is that we'll just be constantly confronted with the fact that God's word is so rich and it is so capable of strengthening us and pushing us forward in the Christian life. And so we now make another transition. It wasn't too long ago we were doing this from John into Ephesians and now we're moving from that chunk of Ephesians into our series on Titus, a short book. I uh, don't know how long we'll be here, but it's a short book nonetheless, it's hopeful. Three chapters, and one of the things that's very interesting, I find kind of fascinating about this book, is that the word gospel does not appear in Titus. Not a single time does the word gospel appear in Titus. And the reason this is so strange is because the gospel is at the heart of everything in the book. Of Titus. In fact, Titus gives some of the clearest and richest descriptions of the gospel of grace that we find in the entire New Testament, and yet the word gospel is not even used. Kind of reminds me of, you know, you think about the book of Esther and how God is not there plastered in the book of Esther on the, on the front page, but we see God working in all these marvelous ways in the background providentially so that God's name is written all over that book just as the gospel is written all over this book, this letter to Titus from the apostle Paul. I wanna just point you to these two posters. 
I want to kind of demonstrate from these what I just said a moment ago about the gospel of grace. So Titus 2, 11 to 14, which we find over here on this wall, a little more visible over there. But it says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot packed into a very small space. But hopefully you can see there, just by looking at, that, at those words on that poster, you can see that the gospel is just everywhere popping the gospel of grace, although the word itself not being used. And over here on this wall, Titus 3, 3 to 7, I won't try to read that one off of the wall, but it says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But listen to this. Just as Trey prayed in reference to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Big word in Titus. Saved, Savior, always appearing throughout this book, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Once again, I think you see there that the gospel is front and center. And really, in many ways, these two passages are at the heart of Titus. These are probably the two most significant passages within the entire book of Titus. And that's the reason that we've chosen these to put up on the wall for you. And here's the beautiful thing that we see in these key passages and throughout the book of Titus. And this is it. The gospel of grace and the imperative or the imperatives of godly living fit perfectly together. Godliness, godly living, holiness of life, purity, all of that, we could even say it this way, good behavior, right conduct. Now we don't like to think in those terms. We'll talk about that a little more a little bit later. But all of that fitting perfectly together with the gospel of grace. And so we get In the chapter two passage, on this wall, we get grace, starting out with this idea, the grace of God has appeared. And then in the middle, we get godly lives, training us to renounce ungodliness, to live godly lives. And then at the end, what does it say? We've been possessed by Jesus to be zealous for good works. This is a a grace person and a godly person, a grace person and a holiness person. Chapter three, we get the transformation from old behavior to new behavior, and then we get God's free and unmerited mercy. So these two things in the book of Titus, really in ways that that don't happen anywhere else in the New Testament, come together so perfectly. And one of the things that 
that's uh, kind of funny, and funny in some ways, is as I was uh, a candidate to come here to, to candidate to, to preach for the first time before this congregation over a year ago when I was applying for this position as pastor of this church, I was going through the process and I was told I was going to come on such and such date and I began to think about what I was going to preach. And I talked with one of the elders and he had kind of given me a lot of history of this church and some of the things that this church had struggled through. And and one of those things was this kind of dichotomy in some ways between kind of grace and, and, and trusting in grace and living in grace. And then on the other hand, this kind of pursuit of what we've just called good behavior, right conduct, godly living, holiness, purity, all of that. Sort of, sort of folks that would maybe fit or, or ideas that would maybe fit into this category or that category. And so as I began to think about what I would preach, uh, one of the, 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 the passage that, that emerged for me was, was one of these passages in Titus. I forget which one it was, to be honest, but it was, either, it was one of these two. And then about a week before I came, uh, the, this elder sent me an email and said, hey, you can just continue our series in John. And so rather than do that, that kind of went out the window. And I decided, okay, well, I'll, I'll, maybe that's for another day. Well, that's for today. That's for today. And, and the following weeks, uh, not for a year plus ago, I was just meant to preach from John chapter 12, which was what I did then in March. But now we come to Titus. Finally, and I think that this is relevant, whether this is the case in the, in, in the history of our church now, I think it is still important to always hold these two things together because there will always be a tendency to, to pit these against each other or to sort of fall into, see yourself as falling into this camp or falling into that camp. And I would submit to you that there are two major responses that should come out of our study in Titus, two major responses. These should come out of essentially every sermon, every chapter. These should come out of the entire series, and it's this. Response number one, a firm confidence in and perpetual reliance upon the free and undeserved grace of God in Christ. That must be a response of our time in Titus. A total surrender and abandonment and trust and reliance. Not a reliance on oneself, but a reliance upon God, upon his grace, upon what he has accomplished for us in Jesus and what he has given us, blessed us with, provided for us in Jesus. The second response, though, equally important. Once again, they go together. A vigorous pursuit and consistent practice of godliness and good works. Godliness and good works. Behavior and a trusting heart. Grace, holiness, grace, purity, right behavior, right conduct, all of these things just coming beautifully together in this book and particularly in these two passages. So what are we going to do today? Well, today's sermon is focused on the greeting of the letter. This is the first four verses. So you can go ahead and look there now. That's what we will spend our time looking at today. The first four verses of Titus. 
And I'll say this before we go, rather than breaking this up into multiple sermons, which was my, I was tempted to do that because it's just so rich, so full. Uh, I mean, you, there, there are very few greetings like this in the New Testament, in Paul's letters. Rather than do that, what we'll do today is try to capture the essence of what's going on in these four verses, and then we'll be referring back to them as we go throughout our study of Titus, because a lot of what Paul will go on to talk about in this letter is, uh, is anticipated right here in the opening, in the greeting of it. So let's read. Titus 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That's just a greeting. Hello. Paul has... All of that to say, this is, this is the kind of, uh, this is, this is the, the, the guy that, that the Lord chose in his grace to, to write most of the New Testament, to bring the gospel to the nations through his writings and through the founding of churches early on. Verse four, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then in first, verse five, you begin to get, this is why I left you in Crete. So we'll focus a little bit more on Titus himself in next week's sermon and as we move forward. But before we jump into these four verses, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his blessing. God, our Savior, our Father, Lord, we praise you that you are our savior. We thank you that before the world began, you made a promise to your son, the Lord Jesus, which he refers to in John 17, that you gave us, your chosen ones, to the son, and he came to purchase us with his own blood. And one day we will be with him We will see his glory and we will be made like him as we dwell with you in eternal bliss, in eternal paradise. Father, we thank you for this salvation. This is why we come here this morning, Lord. And I pray that if there is a person here this morning who does not know you as Savior God, I pray that this morning you will convert that heart. I pray that you will be merciful and gracious God, and for all of us, we need to be reminded of of the fact that you are God, our Savior, of the kind of life that you've called us to and the kind of trust and hope in you that you've called us to. And God, we just pray that as we go through Titus that you'll bring these things to the front of our minds, that grace and godliness will be always before us, that we'll leave here this morning with greater trust in you and greater resolve by your grace to live the kind of life you've called us to. Father, we are a needy people. And that is the way you would have it, Lord, because in that we rely not on our own strength, but we rely on you. And we see you most in our weaknesses, God. And so we praise you that you are great and mighty and powerful in the midst of such weakness, such affliction, such frailty. 
such being overcome by temptation, you are a great and mighty God. We thank you that you are all the things we looked at last week, that you are our deliverer, that you are mighty, that you are faithful, that you reveal yourself, and that you give us your wisdom. And so God, we just pray today that you'll help us, be with us, be near to us today, and speak into each of our lives, we ask, and convert hearts in Jesus' name, for his sake, the sake of his glorious name, amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is A Gospel Worker. One of the things that's difficult sometimes, you know, as you're preaching from, the, uh, from certain passages, certain passages are very specific to either periods in redemptive history or to specific individuals. And so what we get in these opening verses uh, is in some ways very specific to a period in redemptive history and to a person. The period of redemptive history is the revealing of God's mystery, God's what was what was not known by previous generations, but has now been made known in Christ. The, the, the gospel that has gone out not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. The hope of glory, Christ in you. Paul refers to it in all these different ways. But there's a very specific time in redemptive history that we're dealing with when we come to these opening verses in Titus 1. We're also dealing with a very particular individual, an apostle. So he has a very specific ministry that none of us share. We're not apostles like Paul. And so it's not a one-to-one correspondence. We, We don't just sort of take this and apply it very quickly to ourselves. We understand it's situated in its historical context and how it relates to what to who Paul is and what God was doing at that time in the history of the world, in the history of redemption. But we can nonetheless take from this, I think, some very important ideas and principles for what it is, how it is we are to think about doing church, being a Christian, being a gospel worker. Paul was a gospel worker par excellence. He was the quintessential gospel worker. And I would say that you can take that down to to those who who are vocational pastors or those who are elders in a church. You can take it further to those who lead women's ministry or children's ministry or other aspects of ministry within the church. And then it can go down a step even further to every single believer. Because every single believer is in a real sense a gospel worker. We are all those who work that the gospel might be propagated, that the gospel might be made known. And so I think we can take from this something every single believer can take from these opening verses some principles to apply to himself or herself as we look at the quintessential gospel worker, the Apostle Paul. And I think we see four things here. We see the identity of a gospel worker, the objective of a gospel worker, the confidence of a gospel worker, and the product of a gospel worker. So let's look. The first is the identity of a gospel worker. Look at verse one, the identity. One, one, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Christ. Here the author of the letter identifies himself as Paul, Paulos. This is Saul of Tarsus, his, his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. Saul of Tarsus was an extremely religious Jew. 
Wilg made this clear uh, in his sermon not too long ago where he discussed Paul as he's interacting with the Athenians in Acts 17, and he's talking about Paul as this extremely religious guy. He was. He was a Pharisee, which means, and he trained with the best, Gamaliel, in Jerusalem. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he describes himself, which means that he built hedge after hedge after hedge around the revelation of God, around the law, and he, he tried as hard as he could to keep not only what, what was commanded in the law, but all these other little commands that had piled up over generations and generations of Jewish rabbis and teachers. And Paul said, I'm going to keep all of this. I'm going to devote my life to this. I'm going to be the most serious student of the Hebrew Bible and the most serious student of this religion that I possibly can. That was Paul's life. And early on in his life, when he was a young man, we see Paul showing up in the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was one of the earliest deacons, and Stephen is stoned by the Jewish leaders, and the people who stone Stephen, they throw their coats down at Paul's feet. Paul is there as a persecutor. Saul, as he's referred to there, is a persecutor of Christ's people. But then Paul goes to Damascus and he's going to go there and, and round up some Christians so he can drag them back, kicking and screaming, and put them in prison, kill them, whatever it is he's going to do them. And the Lord Jesus appears to him, the risen Christ who's already ascended into heaven, appears to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul is blinded and he is led then to, a, to the home of a believer. And then the Lord appears to Ananias, the Lord comes to a man by the name of Ananias. And you read about this in Acts chapter nine. And this is what the Lord Jesus says to Ananias. He says, go, go to Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, why does the Lord say this to Ananias? Well, I quoted you what, what God said to Ananias after he complained a little bit to God. And after he responded to God, God initially told him, the Lord Jesus told him that this is what he was going to, to go do. He's going to go get Paul. But his response to the Lord was, hold on a second. Are we talking about the same guy? This is the guy who's rounding up and killing Christians. You want me to go get him? I don't want to be anywhere near that guy. And the Lord tells Ananias that he had chosen Paul. And he was going to use him for a very grand and very specific purpose. As I just read to you. And as we read throughout the book of Acts, following this story... We read of Paul's various missionary journeys, evangelistic encounters, and sufferings of various sorts. I mean, Paul in 2 Corinthians describes all of the things he suffered. And I won't read those here or go through those, but just read through that. All of the beatings and the imprisonments and the stonings and the shipwrecks, the sleepless nights, all of the persecution. Paul did, in fact, suffer much in his mission on behalf of Jesus and the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome, freely preaching the gospel. So listen to what it says there. It's amazing. And Jesus begins the book of Acts, or the book of Acts begins as Luke wrote it with the, I thought I was going to lose something there. Began with the book of Acts where 
Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to, to bring the gospel essentially to the ends of the earth. And then at the end of the book of Acts, we have Paul in Rome, the capital city of the world. I mean, it's the most significant place, arguably, in the history of mankind. As you go through the various periods of, of human history, Rome for this period of time was so significant. This was the center of the empire, really the center of the known world. And these are the last two verses of that book. Paul, or he, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, listen to this, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Throughout the book of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit as the central actor. He's the central character in the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit is carrying the gospel. I mean, Jesus told us when we read the gospel of John, Jesus was made clear to the apostles that they would be witnesses for him and that the Holy Spirit would hold him up and, and through the disciples would bear witness to him. And what do we see in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit is carrying the disciples, carrying the mission, carrying the movement forward and forward and forward all the way till we get to the end of Acts and we see these words. Paul is at the center of that. At all of that movement, all of that mission, Paul is right in the middle of it. And it is up to and during this point that Paul writes 10 of his New Testament letters. So you go back through and you read Paul's letters, whether it's Romans or Ephesians or First and Second Thessalonians or Philippians. Read Corinthians, First and Second. You read these letters of Paul and these are written up to this point, up to and through this point when Paul is imprisoned on house arrest in Rome. But Paul was then likely released. We don't read about this in Acts. At the end of Acts, after that, those verses we just read, Paul was likely released and he continued his ministry. Maybe he went as far as Spain, we don't know. And it was during this period when Paul is continuing his ministry, after Acts ends, after this imprisonment in Rome ends, that Paul writes 1 Timothy and Titus. This is probably around AD 62 to 64 before he is arrested again. So he gets a little release, he writes, he ministers, maybe goes as far as Spain, and then he's arrested again, taken to Rome, and martyred there under the emperor Nero. And it's 2 Timothy, when we read that epistle, that we see the heart of Paul and the words of Paul and the will of Paul as he is about to die. As we read through that epistle, we see that this is a man who knows that he is about to be put to death. So the author is this Paul. This is who wrote this letter. The first word that we find in this book. But what I really want to draw your attention to is how Paul identifies himself. How does Paul identify himself? Who does he say that he is? He says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And essentially, this is what Paul is saying. I am a slave of God and a messenger of his risen son. That is who I am at the core. He did not belong to himself. He did not set his own agenda or speak out of his own opinions or speak in his own authority. He did not pursue his own dreams, his own vision for his life, his own ambition. He didn't have sort of a 10-year plan and a 20-year plan and a 30-year plan for how it was all going to play out. Rather, this man, Paul, was entirely submitted to the authority and will of another. 
God and God's Son. Paul recognized two things about his life. That he had been purchased, purchased with Christ's blood, and that he had been commissioned. That is, that he had been sent out on a mission to do something very specific for the Lord. So this letter to Titus bears the stamp of God's authority. Paul is underneath God's authority. And he writes this letter to Titus as such. He's a servant and an apostle which tells Titus, I'm not about my own ends. I'm not about my own purposes. I am about the Lord. I'm about God. Here you go, Titus. And this is exactly what Titus is to convey to everyone in the churches of Crete, as we see there in verse five. So what about us? We know, as I started all of this by saying that Paul is a capital A apostle, a very specific individual in a very specific time He is a capital A apostle or a capital A sent one, messenger, envoy. But we know from the scriptures that we too are slaves of God. We read that last week. We've become slaves of God. We've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. We are God's own possession. Just as the people of Israel were God's own possession when he brought them out of the wilderness brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness and then out of the wilderness into the promised land, we too, those brought out of slavery to sin, are God's own possession. And we've been commissioned to bear witness to and represent the Lord Jesus. Every single one of us. So every single one of us is, as I said before, a gospel worker. Every single one of us is a slave of God and a messenger of Jesus. So what does this look like? for Christians in the local church. What does this look like for us? Well, I think we get the most basic answer in 2 Corinthians 5.15. Paul says this in that letter. Those who live, Christians, those who live in Christ, listen to what this says. And this is an easy idea. Before I read this, I want you to understand, what I'm about to read flies right over our heads. This is a very simple idea that every time we hear it, every, t- every time we read it, we say, well, yeah, of course. But it is the hardest thing to do. And it is the thing that we lack the most. He says this, those who live might no longer live for themselves. That's what we do, right? We live for ourselves. We wake up in the morning, we think about me. We think about what we want to eat. We think about where we want to go. We think about, and even in our spiritual lives, don't we do this? Don't we think about, how am I doing with the Lord? How am I doing in my spiritual life? My spiritual goals, my spiritual disciplines, my spiritual discipleship, and my Christian assurance. We we think about ourselves all the time. I'm guilty. I don't know if, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not guilty, but we are selfish individuals. We are always thinking about ourselves. And what Paul says is that to be a Christian, to be a gospel worker, is to be a person who at the core, who at the heart of his or her existence, is to be a person who who no longer lives for themselves. Now think about this. That means that you should be able to look back at your conversion. You should be able to look back on your old life in Christ and say, yep, I was living for myself. That's exactly what I was doing. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. If there's never been a time in your life 
where you were just living for yourself, consumed with yourself, and then all of a sudden God changed you. Maybe it was over a period of time. Maybe you didn't, you, you can't even isolate it, but you know that, that God really worked a work in your heart. And although we still remain selfish, as I talked about at the very beginning, we're, we're prone to wonder. We're prone to be about ourselves, but it's, it's that transformation of heart that at the core means that you no longer live for yourself. Of all the things that identify a believer, this is toward the top of the list. So search your heart. Do you live for yourself? We all do to a certain degree. But is this the dominating principle of your life? If it is, search your heart. Ask for God's grace. Pray. Make your calling and election sure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want to give just four brief applications for us as we think about what this looks like in practice. To be a slave of God and a messenger of his risen son. First of all, it means being single-minded. Can you imagine that? Paul, he didn't think about anything but the glory of God in Christ. That's all he thought about. I recently got... A, uh, a theology of, of Paul by Thomas Schreiner, a great writer, a great scholar of the New Testament. And the glory of God in Christ is what he understands to be the central idea in the Apostle Paul's theology. This dominated every waking moment of Paul's life. He was always thinking about how God is upheld, glorified, shining bright in awesome splendor in the face of his son Jesus. How God in Jesus had brought salvation to all people for the sake of the glory of his grace and for his eternal mercy being held up always. Paul was single-minded. What would a church look like if it was filled with single-minded believers, single-minded slaves of God, single-mindedness, Letting God take care of all the things that we worry about and be a Colossians 3 kind of believer. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Entrusting earthly things to Jesus. Being wise with earthly things. Uh, referring everything back to God but ultimately trusting him with all the little cares of our lives so that our mind can be fixated on his glory in Christ and the spread of that glory in the hearts and minds of other people. Single-minded, that's what Paul was. That's what we should be. He was useful. A servant or a slave is useful. Always useful. This image of a slave in the ancient world was someone who was, in a real way, property of the person who owned him or her. And this person was to be useful. And what did I just read from Acts? What did God tell Ananias? He said that Paul would be a what? An instrument, an instrument. To be a slave of God, to be a sent one of Jesus, to have this kind of identity as a gospel worker is to be a useful tool in the hand of God. A useful instrument so that God can, can grab hold of you and use you for his glory in the world. That's exactly what we should pursue. That's what God wants for us. That's the kind of mentality that a gospel worker, any gospel worker, not just one who gets a salary through gospel ministry, or not just one who's an elder of a church, or not just one who leads a ministry within the church, but every believer 
should be this, useful in the hand of the master. Humble. The idea of being a slave obviously denotes humility. And this means that the person who serves another's purposes, when there is any kind of growth or success or fruit or anything, well, it's his. It's his glory. It's not, it's not my glory. It's not your, it's, it's God's glory. I'm just a tool. I'm just an instrument. I'm just a slave of God. That's all I am. And that's part of what it means to be this, to have this identity as a gospel worker. And finally, and very importantly, dependent. We're dependent on God. We can do nothing apart from Christ. What did, what did Christ say in, in John 15? He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he went on to say that unless we abide in him, we can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. You have no power, no strength at all apart from total reliance and total dependence on God. You know where this shows up? I think we should, we're all convicted on this. Reliance and dependence on God shows up in prayer. Period. That's it. The extent of a Christian's prayer life demonstrates the extent to which we rely on God and trust in him and depend on him because if we don't pray, it means we think we can do it. I can do it myself. I'm strong. I can make this work. A slave has no strength. He depends on the resources of his master. Apart from his master, he has nothing. And this is the case for a gospel worker who belongs to God. So that's the identity of a gospel worker. Now we see the objective of a gospel worker. Look at, continue to look at verse one. Now we're going to begin to kind of take in larger chunks of this. One, one, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And here I want to sort of come back to some of the themes that I mentioned in the introduction. But Paul's letter to Titus gives us one of the longest explanations of what Paul was about. If you want to know kind of what, what made Paul tick, what he was interested in doing, why he was bouncing around all these churches, bouncing around the Mediterranean world, writing all of these letters, getting to know all of these people, why was he doing that? What was he about? One of the most, uh, one of the most extensive explanations of that we find in these opening verses. The nature and goals of his gospel ministry. And this content would have helped the recipients of his letters and in this case, Titus, to know what they should be about as well. So if you want to know, you, we're asking ourselves this question. What should we be about as a local church? It's right here. Clear. What should I be about in my daily Christian living, especially as I relate to this local body of believers, especially as I consider myself a member of this body of believers? It's right here. It's right here in a really extensive way in the opening verses of the book of Titus. These explanations provide guidance for us individually and collectively. And so Paul gives us the purpose of his gospel work. Here it is. This is a purpose. It's always important to notice purpose ideas when we read the scriptures. It says this, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that is in accordance with godliness. And I think this purpose tells us two basic things, two basic things. First, 
Our devotion to God should be others-oriented. I'll say it this way. Service to God is always service to others. I've recently come across two books on productivity. And uh, one of them is called What's Best Next? And uh, another one is called Do More Better. These are Christian books on productivity. And one of the things that I find fascinating about both of these books is that both of them make the point that what we ought to be about is the good of other people. So if we're trying to figure out, what do I do today? What, what, how, do, how should I organize my life, my personal life, my sort of, the, the leisure portion of my life or whatever, how are you, you know, maybe you're a compartmental kind of thinker or maybe it all bleeds together for you, I don't know. But as you think about life, what should we be doing? How should we be thinking about why we do what we do, what we do? Should I choose this or this or, or th- these three or these five things or, or, or what, what, what should I pursue? What goals should I set for myself? The answer is others oriented. We should always be oriented towards the good of others. And specifically, Paul here says, the chosen ones or the elect of God. Paul always labored for others. And I've mentioned this before, but you can't read Paul's epistles and all the names that he mentions. And especially at the end of Romans. Read Romans chapter 16. It is, it is 20 some names there. That Paul's just saying, greet this person, greet that person, greet this person. I want to say this to you. It's not that Paul was relational. We hear that language a lot. You know, I'm relational. I'm a relational person. You're a relational person. I'm not really a relational person. It's not about being relational. It's about being a gospel worker. So whether you are relational or not, whether you're extroverted or introverted, we're all called to be others-oriented gospel workers. And so that's the first thing I want you to see. Service to God is always about service to others. We see that with Paul. He's laboring on behalf of the elect. Our concern for others should be focused. This is the second thing I want you to see. Our concern for others should be focused on three things simultaneously. We see these three things in this verse. Their trust, their understanding, and their conduct. So think about it this way. You're going through your life and you're focusing entirely on others. Your spouse, your children, other people in your family, people in your gospel community group, people here at church, people involved in the various ministries that we're involved in here as a church. You're thinking about these people. What should you be focusing on as you relate to them? What should you be pursuing? Their trust, their understanding, and their conduct. Let's look at each of these quickly. Their trust. Paul says that he was doing all of this for the purpose of the faith of God's elect. Their faith, this is trust in God's grace. We all know how easy it is to drift from trusting in God to trusting in other things. We all know how easy it is to drift from trusting in God to trusting in myself. As we just talked about, I can do this. And what we should always be about in the lives of other people is cultivating in them this hope in the gospel, this trust in the gospel, this reliance and dependency on the doctrine of God our Savior, as we see in chapter 2, verse 10. So trust. Secondly, we see understanding, their knowledge of the truth. This is adherence to true Christian teaching. So we have the gospel understood, the basic of the gospel 
the basic gospel message of Christ's death on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection from the dead in which our hope is found, the basic gospel message, and then all of the implications of that gospel begin to sort of spin off of it or emanate out of it or extend from it. All of the implications for life, all of the implications for how we understand the scriptures, the implications for how we put these doctrines together, all of this is part of what we should be about as we relate to other people. This is not just a, you know, everyone's staying sort of a simple childlike faith. You oftentimes hear that, right? So sometimes ignorance is excused with that phrase, a simple childlike faith. And I, oftentimes that is meant to sort of excuse a lack of depth, a lack of understanding, a lack of pursuing an understanding of the gospel and knowing all of its various facets. We should be about that as we pursue the good of others. One commentator says that this includes a rejection of all competing messages. How many competing gospels are there? There's only one gospel, Paul said. But in our world, through media, through friends we have, through other avenues, we get all kinds of competing messages that are always coming into our minds. Things that are competing for our heart. Things that are competing for our minds. And part of what we are to do is to direct people away from those towards the truth. And then finally we have conduct. Knowledge of the truth, and notice what it says here, that is in accordance with godliness. Godliness is reverence towards God reflected in our behavior. Christian truth has a moral character. Now, one, you may have heard of Kent Hughes and Brian Chapel. One, these are two commentators that have commented on a number of biblical books, but in particular here on Titus. And one of the things that I find relevant for what I initially mentioned about sort of this dichotomy between grace and, and holiness or grace and godliness is something that they say in their commentary on these verses. And they, they speak of, of one of the dangers that face persons raised in a moralistic and legalistic type of environment. So maybe that's you. Maybe you were raised in a kind of, in a kind of church or a kind of atmosphere where Christianity was about what you do and what you don't do. That's what Christianity is about. And so as long as you get it straight, what you don't do, then you don't do it, and you're living a good Christian life. That is the essence of Christianity. Sure, the gospel's in there somewhere, but by and large, it is about this sort of legalistic, moralistic message of sort of doing what you need to do, and then you're good with God. And some of you maybe were raised in that kind of environment. And in many ways, as I've discussed with people here uh, about, about the gospel, as I've talked with people here in this church, I've talked with a number of people who came out of that and who discovered the gospel of grace. And one of the things that they have cherished about Four Corners historically is that Four Corners has been a church where the gospel of grace is the emphasis and not these other things. But there's a danger. And this is what Hughes and Chapel cite. They say this, such persons may have followed a legalistic, listen to this closely, such persons may have followed a legalistic code of conduct for many years on the premise that such a code qualifies one to be a Christian, much as Paul's opponents taught on Crete. When these long-churched persons finally understand that what God has done in Christ 
rather than what they do in their own strength is the sole basis of their hope, they may also question whether what they have long rejected is now acceptable. So think about this. You're making this journey. Light bulb goes, goes off. You see the gospel of grace. And you're like, man, what was I thinking back there? That legalism and that moralism. Such persons often begin to experiment with new patterns of conduct in terms of their language, dress, entertainments, and places to socialize in certain, and here's the point, in certain sad cases, he says, under the rationale that, quote, we are now under grace. These people not only reject improper legalisms, which is good and healthy and right, but also cast off, listen closely, also cast off standards of conduct that have long protected them from serious sin. Does that happen? Of course it happens. Is it happening in your life? We are told here that the knowledge of the truth, faith in the gospel, knowledge of the truth, where that grows and grows and grows, guess what else grows? Godliness. The knowledge of the truth that is in accordance with godliness. So that's the objective. And then the final two we'll go through a little more quickly. Thirdly, it's the confidence of a gospel worker. Look at verses two and three. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, there's a lot of material here, as you see over there. In fact, verses one to four, by the way, are one sentence in Greek. One sentence. Do you write sentences like this? Paul does everywhere. One sentence in Greek. A ton of material here. But what I want to do is just draw your attention to a few main things. I want you to look first at this, this, this word hope. The words in hope of eternal life can also be translated resting upon the hope of eternal life. This tells us that Paul's gospel work was always based upon and motiva motivated by a confidence in what God would one day do. And so Paul says this elsewhere. For to this end we toil and strive. Listen to this, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So I wanna point you to this idea. Everything that we do as believers, all the gospel work that we're involved in, if it is not done resting firmly on hope of what God will do, resting firmly on what hope of what, on the thing that God has promised he will do and hope in that, in other words, if we are not pulled forward as we work, then we will be working in vain. We'll be working out of the gospel. We'll be working away from the gospel. We'll be working in our own strength. And this is the most simple way to know whether or not you've been working and doing the Christian life, going about the Christian life in your own strength or not. The most simple way is this. Are you conscious of all the things that God has promised he will give to you as you go about your gospel work. Paul was, as he says here, resting on the hope of eternal life. This is what, what founded him. This is what he based everything he did on. He was always looking up and out as he worked as hard as he could and as he labored. He was always looking up and out at everything that God had promised him. 
And the passage goes on to identify the certainty of this hope with God's sovereign faithfulness. So I just want to draw your attention to some of these verbs that we get in these verses. Notice the activity of God. He promised, he manifested, he entrusted, he commanded, he did all of this as God our Savior. Here's what I want you to see. All of this lies behind, underneath, and in front of the gospel worker. All of this. The hope that we have in Christ as we look forward to that thing and all of the certainty that we have in God. He's a faithful God. He keeps his promises. He has commanded. He has brought these things to pass. He has has inspired the scriptures through the apostles who wrote them. And he continues to do all of this in our lives. So we have a confidence in God's activity and we have a hope in what is to come. And this must drive the gospel worker. Apart from this, we will be laboring in our own strength. And, and by the way, no joy. There's no joy in a bunch of sacrificial service that's focused on someone else. I'm reading uh, Huckleberry Finn right now for uh, Sharon Sellers and I. We meet sometimes. We discuss literature. She's great, great at that. And um, we, uh, I'm reading Huckleberry Finn. And one of the things that's very interesting at the beginning of, of Huckleberry Finn is he, he's just this very you know, nonchalant, very commonsensical kid, and he's getting in all this trouble with his little friend, Tom Sawyer, and one of the things that he's told is that, that you should live your life for other people, and he begins to sort of go, he always goes out to the woods and sort of has to think about it and figures out, you know, is this, is this, is this good or bad or whatever, I mean, very common sense approach, and what he says is, I reckoned in my mind that this was, uh, this was no good, this was of no advantage to me to always be pursuing everyone else's needs. It would, it would benefit them, but it certainly wouldn't benefit me. And he said, so I decided that I wasn't gonna do that. He went on about his day. That's the sort of common sense approach of this kid depicted in Huckleberry Finn. And I think this, the, the same is true of us. You can only labor under sacrificial service for so long until you crack and crumble on the ground with no joy, with no happiness. The only way there's joy is if we're doing it with something else in view. And it's always lifting us up, lifting us up. Even if you're shipwrecked, sleepless nights, beaten, stoned nearly to death, and so on and so forth. None of us who are about the work of the ministry, about the work of the church, none of us has experienced that. Paul was always joyful. His soul was always being lifted up to a new state of bliss because of this hope and this certainty that he had in God. As we finish up this morning, we come to the product, the product of a gospel worker. Look at verse four. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Next week we'll talk a little bit more about Titus, his relationship to Paul and his role in this letter. But for now, I just want you to see one basic thing about Titus. Titus is more than a recipient, Titus is a product. Titus is a product of gospel work. Titus is a product of a gospel worker. He was probably converted by Paul. He was instrumental in much of Paul's ministry, particularly in the city of Corinth, that very troubled city. And then now in in Crete, where you have all of this stuff going on there as well. Titus labors in very hard places. He was a Greek, not a Jew. 
He was taken to that council in Acts chapter 15 where, where he, he goes before all of the apostles there in Jerusalem and they're talking about should the Gentiles be circumcised or not. And Titus was taken along as an example of a Gentile who had believed who did not need to be circumcised. And Titus is a product. Paul calls him here a true child in a common faith. So here's what I want to leave you with. When we understand ourselves as slaves and messengers, number one, when we make our lives about others with, with attention specifically to their trust, their understanding, and their conduct, and when we are motivated in everything that we do by hoping in a faithful God, we bear fruit like Titus. This church will bear fruit for the coming generations. This, our children will declare the Lord and the next generations of this church, the, his, the longevity of this church. Will this church be here? Will this church, four corners, maybe not in this spot, but will this body of believers exist in 50 years? It depends on this. It depends on whether or not we will be this kind of, of gospel worker. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the work of the gospel. Thank you for the hope that pulls us forward and is a sure foundation for our feet. Father, I pray for that joy, that joy that comes only by hoping, that self-sacrificial service, that attention to the lives of others that comes only on the foundation, that rests only on the foundation of this hope. God, would you help us to bear fruit, and would that fruit be the lives of people that are changed, people who are true children in a common faith, people whom we disciple and grow and pour our lives into, Father. May everyone in this church who is a believer begin to think about himself or herself as a disciple maker, as someone who is a gospel worker. We pray by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.